Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I'm Nathan, and joining me today is Craig. Hello. Susie. Hello. And Colin. Yeah, g'day. How's it going? Hi, Colin. Sorry if I cut in and out. We've got a, we're having a few issues. Uh, community notice board, upcoming events in New Zealand and Australia. First is probably Geo, because he comes first in the alphabet, and is the first event. George Frab. 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 George Frab. Frab. George Frab is coming to Tam, Australia, and someone has talked him into doing a tour while he's here of Australia and New Zealand. He is going to be in Brisbane, Melbourne, Christchurch, Auckland, Adelaide, and Canberra. And uh, because we don't really care about the Australians, We'll just tell you about the New Zealand ones. Christchurch is the... 1st of December. 1st of December. And Auckland is the 2nd. And the details of the the Auckland gig, uh, it will be 8pm at Bungalow 8 in the Viaduct. Uh, Entry is via tickets that can be purchased on iticket.co.nz for $10. And the Christchurch performance is going to be at... The usual Skeptics in the Pub venue, the Twisted Hop, and it's uh, managed on the Styrofoam Tour website, which is the styrofoamtour.org, and all you have to do is sign up, and they're charging $5 for a ticket. So, even better value if you fly to Christchurch and go to that concert instead. You save yourself 5 bucks. Pretty sure that's how it works. So, Christchurch and Auckland... and $10, and all the information you need to know is on the styrofoamtour.org. The the Auckland one will be twice as good because it's twice as (laughs) good. That's very, very, very true, actually, probably, because the more you pay for something, the more value you put on it, and the more you enjoy it. Yes, and the Auckland one, you will need to buy tickets, but there'll be a link to iTicket on the styrofoamtour.org. And the other thing that's happening is a visit from Rebecca Watson of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, Skeptic.org. There's a Skeptic podcast as well. Little Atoms, which she helps out with. Curiosity Aroused. Rebecca Watson is a busy, busy girl, and she has made time out of her schedule to come and see us in New Zealand. And Craig's in charge of that, so he's going to tell us what the venues and dates and prices are. Well, at the moment, things are still being settled. However, she is going to be in Christchurch on the 7th of December. And I believe it'll be at the Twisted Hop. Very probably. In Wellington on the 9th of December at the Back Bencher. And uh, entry to that is $20. And on the 11th of December, um, we're doing it as a Skeptics in the Pub, Auckland Skeptics in the Pub dinner event. And at the moment, um, it's planned to be at the Crib in Ponsonby. Um, and the price of dinner and the uh, privilege of uh, listening to and hopefully meeting Rebecca is $50. And uh, tickets for that are available on iticket.co.nz. So there you are. That's the upcoming events that you need to know about. We expect to see everybody there that can make it. We've had some feedback from our awesome listeners we really like getting feedback so please do even if you just want to criticize us and tell us we're idiots uh, feedback is good or even that only certain members of us are idiots that's probably more likely isn't it it could just be that you want to criticize one of us in particular that's fine (laughs) 
Um, so we got an email from Byron Clark, and he says, Yes, there is at least one communist listening. Hi everyone, I just listened to episode 8 where you said, and by you he means me, <laughs> where you said, I'm pretty sure that communism is stupid. If there's communists listening, feel, feel free to write in and tell me why I'm wrong. As a communist, I thought I should comment. Was the communism of Stalin's Russia stupid? Yes. That's why they decided not to do it anymore. Presumably, yes. Is the model used by Cuba stupid? A bit harder to say. Restrictions on free speech and imprisoning journalists, on one hand, the only nation in South America with universal health care and education, on the other. But is it good health care? Uh, yeah, I'm just reading his email out, basically, so I don't actually know anything. Please leave your comments until the end. <laughs> oh, sorry. I don't think, however, that this is a debate for a skeptics podcast. Well, we'll debate just about anything if, you, um, <laughs> if someone disagrees with somebody. Uh, that said, I would be surprised if I was the only Marxist skeptic, given that Karl Marx based his philosophy on a firm materialist foundation and was a staunch rationalist and lover of science, so much that he gifted a copy of the first volume of Das Kapital to Charles Darwin, who replied, Though our studies have been so different, I believe that we both earnestly desire the extension of knowledge. Admittedly, however, that quote would carry more weight had Darwin actually read the book. The Communist League, whose mayoral blurb you quoted, are in a league of their own, though. In 2004, their Christchurch mayoral candidate... In 2004, their Christchurch mayoral candidate used a campaign speech to advocate the right of North Korea to nuclear electrification. Hardly a pressing local issue in the Garden City. The majority of Marxists would be sceptics, albeit sceptics with a lowercase Yes. That's my two cents. Keep up the good work. Thank you. We will. Uh, from Byron. So, basically, just summarising his email as I understand it, I think what he's saying there is it's a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> yes, probably you're summarising it with it is stupid. Is <laughs> it's a little, bit, little bit broad in general. So, it's possible that there is some, some sort of logical and rational basis to communism, um, but at least in one example that's been tried it hasn't worked for whatever reason and some people are doing good things with it at the end of the day my problem with with communism is the idea that no one gets to own anything hmm. uh, i mean what do you do if you want a big screen tv or a, or you, a do, gold... you just get to own the same as everyone else or well what if i want a big screen tv that's my question or what if i want a gold-plated cadillac does everybody get a gold-plated cadillac because what if somebody doesn't want a gold-plated cadillac but only wants a um I think we should move on. on. Okay. Move on to the news. Yep. Um, who's first? We're going to start with scientific evidence for psychic powers. Um, so, a respected peer-reviewed journal in psychology, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, is about to publish a paper that presents scientific evidence for precognition. So, what we can say is that the paper is by a very well-respected researcher from Cornell University who has been researching all these sorts of things for quite a long time and that the journal is rather prestigious. Very, very prestigious is what I've been told. So while none of us are qualified to comment on the methodology of the, of the testing or anything like that, uh, we have it on good authority that Dr. Bem knows what he's doing and that he has probably done a good test. 
Shall we tell everybody what the test was? Well, my understanding of it is this, that people in the experiment are shown a photograph and they need to then make a choice as to whether it's a positive photograph or a negative photograph. And if you just show somebody a photograph that's positive or negative, then they will make a choice after their brain processes the information in a certain amount of time. What you can do is you can prime them by essentially flashing a word to them before showing the photograph that is not fast enough to be consciously recognised, but is recognised by the subconscious brain. So you might flash up a word that says happy, and then you get shown a happy photograph, and through that priming you're able to choose that it is happy faster than if you hadn't been primed. So what they did in this experiment is that they actually showed people the photographs and then and showed them the prime word after the photograph. And according to the, the paper, they still got the decreased time to pick the happy photo by being primed afterwards. Yeah. So how are you then not being primed for the next picture? Obviously there's a random choice by the computer doing the thing as to whether you, you get shown a, a happy photograph or a sad photograph, and then you can statistically analyse the results. Okay. Okay. I understand that, I think. Okay, so there's a very nice, there's sort of all sorts of blogs about it, but there's one of the blogs, Why Evolution is True blog, uh, basically says there are at least four reason, four explanations for the results that they have come up with. So the first is that they're real. The second is that they're fraudulent, so that the experiment was rigged or the data was made up. So given that this is a, from what we've heard about this man and about the journal, this suggests that this isn't true. Um, they're wrong because of a flaw in the experiment or in the com in the computer program, possible, or that the results are statistical outliers, which seems to be the most likely result, basically. So this is based on the fact that when you do a statistical test, you get this p-value and it's basically saying how um, sure you are that your results are real. So we go for a p equals 0.05 and that means that 95% of the time that that result will be a real result, 5% of the time it would have been due to chance. Yeah, okay. Spurious, positive Yeah, result. spurious. So it means we've got a 5% chance of it being spurious. And if it is that 5%, you just happen to have been in that 5%, then we call this a type 1 error. And there's been a, there's a lovely quote in here about an old science joke, which I hadn't heard before, um, saying 95% of your experiments fail, the other 5% you publish in Nature, which I thought was <laughs> wonderful. Anyway, so there's various talk about it but what's really interesting is that people have posted there's 111 comments at the, mo at the moment in response to this blog um, so the first one is the, a guy from the University of Edinburgh saying they're arranging a replication attempt right now so I think so that's the first thing is if it can be replicated then that's suggesting it's a real result so he says we're doing it right now um, but then some other guys have basically put up a paper already so, so somebody from Carnegie Mellon University and somebody from the University of California um, have put up a, a paper on the Social Science Research Network. So it's titled, A Replication of the Procedures from uh, BEM and a Failure to Replicate the Same Results. Hmm. So they have tried already and um, failed. But what's really interesting is a little bit further down in the comments, some people have basically submitted a reply to the paper um, outlining some studies. And what they've done is looked at the data analysis. So they've basically the guy has used used a one-sided p-value. This is all basically statistics, but essentially, um, it, 
it's a, it's basically making the statistical test not quite so rigorous. If you use a one-sided test, you're already suggesting you know what way the results are going to go. But anyway, so they've reanalyzed the data using a much more stringent test and shown that basically there is no significance. From what I read in the initial article was that the the actual the effect size is very small. Yes. It was say something like three percent. Yeah. So if you basically if you are analyzing it, analyze it using a very stringent test, then you don't see a significant difference. So the fact that they've found that and someone has already tried to reproduce the results and not managed and someone else is doing it in Edinburgh. Well, at any rate, this is it's very interesting and it was very exciting for a while. Then. Well, it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very much so. And, and I think it bears repeating that something sceptics say all the time is we'd like nothing more than for someone to prove that some sort of psychic powers are real uh, would be very, very exciting for science. Okay, so the next uh, would be Dawkins. An ungodly row. Dawkins sues his disciple. And I love the clever use of, um, of religious terminology in the um, headline there. Evolutionists' charity accuses protege of stealing hundreds of thousands of pounds. So what's happened, basically, is Josh Timonen, who was one of Richard Dawkins... I guess protege did a lot of work for Richard on uh, his website. The two atheists had become close in recent years with Dawkins, the best-selling author, bloody bloody blah, even even dedicating his latest book, The Greatest Show on Earth, to him. But Mr. Timonen and the Dawkins Foundation are now preparing for a legal wrangle. The Richard uh, the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science has filed four lawsuits in a Californian court alleging that Mr. Timonen, who ran its online operation in America, stole $375,000 over three years, and is claiming 950000 in damages. And Mr. Dawkins is suing for $14,000 that he has personally owed. Uh, and there's kind of a long story, and um, it's actually quite interesting to read the, the legal paper that's been submitted. It kind of goes through each thing step by step. Um, but essentially, Josh Timonen was running a website selling the merchandise, Richard Dawkins' merchandise. There was some reason that Richard Dawkins couldn't do it on the main website. Okay, the foundation claims that Mr. Timonen said the website he was running was just squeaking by, when in fact it was grossing ten times that sum. The charity alleges, which is the word I was looking for, Mr. Timonen pocketed 92% of the money generated by the store. And some examples there with his girlfriend spent $100,000 of the charity's money on upgrading her home. And uh, Josh has issued a statement. This lawsuit is a joke and completely ridiculous. The accusations are baseless and unfounded. If you read the lawsuit, it seems that they kind of have all the accounts and information from Josh. So I'm a little bit surprised that he's not, that he's sort of basically coming out and saying it's all a load of bollocks. Um, so maybe there's more to find out there, but... It seems, uh, it seems like it'll be fairly easy to prove one way or the other. It seems unlikely they would bring the suit if there wasn't uh, some basis for it. Now, the other reason that's quite interesting, which kind of follows on, or this follows on from, um, back in February of this year, 2010, um, the Richard Dawkins forums closed down. And for anyone that missed that, I'm going to try and summarise it really quickly. Basically, um, Josh was running the website, um, more or less on his own. 
and Josh was on record as saying things like using a forum as a substitute for a, we a real website is sloppy and lazy. The Richard Dawkins Foundation forums is basically run and moderated by a, a team of very very dedicated volunteers or was. None of them got paid anything and they all put a lot of effort and a lot of their own personal time into maintaining the forums part of that website and it was a huge community. So in the forum the average posts per day were about 2,834. Lots and lots and lots of members and it was a a huge resource of information because there were discussions about all sorts of scientific topics and what have you. So that's all fine and the moderators are all happy and then Josh sends an email out saying that uh, and I'm sort of paraphrasing this so don't cru crucify me if I get bits wrong but Josh sent the, everyone a message saying that he was going to close the forums down because he had a great idea for a new way of doing it that would be more in line with the foundations bloody bloody blah and it was going to be more more along the lines of a uh, blog system where you could post a, an article and people could comment on it. It was going to be heavily moderated. And Josh was telling the moderators that he was going to keep them in the loop and that the forums were going to stay up for 30 days to give everyone time to archive all of their posts and what have you. And then pretty much without warning, all of a sudden the forums just got turned off. Now, if you want to know the actual nitty-gritty details, you should go and read up some of the blog posts and articles about it, because it is quite interesting. So the forums were sort of stopped without really any uh, discussion with the moderators. And then replaced by this? Yeah, well, the, the new system is up and running now, as I understand it. But after he's closed the forums, uh, he then started deleting people that were criticising in the forums and in, in messages. And when you delete a user, all of their posts get deleted as well. So there's huge chunks of this forum are just disappearing and no one's had a chance to, to archive it or back it up. Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> that was an in-joke. That's an in-joke <laughs> that we are not going to tell you about. <laughs> Susan and I will uh, fill you in later. And then, um, and then Richard Dawkins issued a statement. It was a little bit knee-jerky and didn't really take into account the actual situation. And yeah, it was a bit of a mess. And um, it was basically, as far as I can tell, more or less all Josh's fault. And uh, yeah, so and then he turns around and it turns out that he may actually have been stealing from Richard Dawkins as well. So go and have a look at that and follow that story all the way through I'll put a link up on the links page and so forth but if you just google Richard Dawkins forums I'm sure it'll come up eventually and Susie you're next the next story is a wonderful story from the Dominion Post um, sex offender invokes eternal damnation fear in DNA fight so essentially a child sex offender um, believes giving a DNA sample would condemn, condemn him to eternal damnation therefore he wants an exemption from inclusion on the National Police Database. So he is a Christian and believes that if his DNA was taken, he would be given the mark of the beast and damned for eternity. Um, he's serving two years and nine months in prison um, for indecent, indecent acts on young people. Um, uh, yeah, so that's quite funny. That basically he believes that... Um, that if wow. he gave his DNA, he'd be cut off from his God, from his community, and it would impinge on his rehabilitation. He says he believes. He says he, says he believes, yes. Um, and I can't 
it doesn't seem as though a decision's been made yet. It says the, the, the judge reserved his decision. What does that mean? Does that mean he hasn't decided yet? Or? No idea. Um, but he did say, the judge did say, that any god that would damn someone for eternity because a DNA sample was taken against their will was a pretty tough god. So um, it's making no comment about whether he might have already been struck out of... Out of... Yes, for the <laughs> crimes that he is in jail for. Allegedly in jail for. No, he is in jail. Oh, he is in he jail. He is in jail. He oh, is so in it's jail. not just talking about being put on some sort of register. Yes. Okay. Yes, because obviously this guy's got future plans to do other things in future. Doesn't want to be on the database because he'll get yes. caught. Good call. Yes. Okay, so but what's quite important here is that, that you can object to having your sample taken based on harm caused by actually taking the sample. So you can put an objection in. Because if you don't want a bit sliced out of you, you can say... Yeah, but they don't... I mean, they don't do that. They they take cells from your cheek or something yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... So what harm is um, it talking about then? Well, no, he... I mean, he's... You can make an objection based on physical harm it will cause, which clearly in this case it won't, and he's just putting this kind of so psychological harm... So he's trying to turn it into spiritual harm yeah. instead, okay. Um, yeah, well... Yeah, so it's... That's not going to work, I'm pretty sure. But you can definitely tell which way the judge is leaning, because he um, also asked... The um, the guy whether um, the mark of the beast had been put on him already because he'd had his photographs taken and his fingerprints taken and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. So um, he was arrested. So there you go. Um, so that's quite a neat story. Um, and leads on to another um, quite neat religious story, um, which has the tagline "Evolution by Religious Selection." Uh, let me just find the actual paper from this. So this is a publication in. Um, Biology Letters, uh, titled An Indigenous Religious Ritual uh, Selects for Resistance to a Toxicant in a Live-Bearing Fish. Um, so basically, there are um, indigenous groups in Mexico who have um, who have a ritual where they introduce um, Barbasco, which is a fish toxicant, into, um, into a, a, some water, uh, and it's used to harvest fish during a religious ceremony. And so these so guys, the yeah, so, yeah, so they basically, it kills the fish, they grab the fish, and then it, um, it's all about, yeah, wait, wanting their crops to, to, um... And what do they do with the fish? Do they, they eat them, them. they oh. eat them, they eat so the fish. The, the toxicant doesn't affect the... No, well, it doesn't say anything about that there. We could look up Barbasco. Um, anyway, these scientists basically investigated tolerance to this toxin, um, from fish in these exposed sites and also from other places where they weren't exposed to the toxin um, and basically found that there was a difference between the tolerance so essentially the fish that are exposed to the to, to this barbasco are becoming more um more tolerant of the toxin um than ones that are not i have to admit to not having read this article i sort of i was busy doing something else and i just sent it through to the rest of the group but can I just say that I'm really, really disappointed in the actual facts of this case? When I just saw this briefly, I assumed that the fish were doing something religious, <laughs> which was which was selecting them somehow. But this is just normal artificial selection. It just happens to evolve a religious ritual. 
Yes. There's not really anything all that special about that, is there? No, it's Correct. not as interesting it's, as I well, thought it was. It's, it's ironic in that uh, we're seeing natural selection in action as a result of uh, religious ceremony. Well, is that, and so as the authors start their abstract, human-induced environmental change can affect the evolutionary trajectory of populations. But we already knew that. That's quite nice. Well, yes, but some people deny it. Oh, <laughs> I see. So, so you're talking about irony. Yeah. Sorry, okay. <laughs> Nathan's irony meter isn't switched on today <laughs> due to a lack of sleep. Anyway, so moving, moving on, on from to... Toxic Fish to Love Potions. I love this story. Um, oh, yes. So, just because I'm a microbiologist, I love this story. So, um, this is basically a paper that's been published in the um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, which is an extremely high-impact journal, um, and is basically about uh, Drosophila, um, which are these really little fruit flies that have been really important in genetics. Um, Basically, they use they, they use these little fruit flies for everything. They do, right. pretty much, they do. Um, so the finding is that Drosophila um, seem to prefer to mate with Drosophila that have been raised on the same diet. So they've had... Um, colonies of Drosophila that have been basically been raised on certain diets and then um, if you put them together they, they will prefer to mate with um, with the opposite sex that have been raised on the same diet. So this is, um, they had raised uh, some on molasses and some on starch and so if you put um, yeah flies together of each one they will basically go to the go to the one of the same diet. So what they did was they treated these um, guys with antibiotics to basically remove their gut flora, um, so their gut bacteria, and then tried the same thing, and then this mating preference disappeared. So then it didn't matter what they were, what they'd eaten, they, um, they, didn't, they didn't care. So they found, they've then looked at the gut bacteria, um, and they've found they've they've um, basically put it down to one bacteria called Lactobacillus pl- um, plantarum. So in the starch-raised flies, the um, the bacteria in the guts of those flies, about twenty-six percent of them were this um, Lactobacillus, whereas the ones that were raised on molasses were only three percent. And then basically, if they actually seeded Drosophila with this um, Lactobacillus, then you re- you um, regained this. Uh, selection again, so I just thought this was fabulous, and they've they've started doing some looking at it, and they think it might be to do with the pheromones. So basically, the guts in the bugs are affecting the pheromone production, which is affecting their um, their choice of mates. And I just thought that was lovely. So there you go, your bacteria may well determine who you get off with at the the nightclub. And of course, it's only just a very very small step from there to actually being able to create. A love potion. A love potion. <laughs> that will make you a pheromone mixture that will make you yeah. um, well, irresistible oh, to women. Or, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. So maybe the probiotic drinks are not having quite the effect we thought. Maybe. Maybe right. they're not. Um, more research needs yeah, to be done. Yeah, definitely more research. So anyway. <laughs> so at the nightclub, you take your probiotic drink along and you spike some woman's drink with it. <laughs> The completely unnecessary sceptical podcast does not endorse or condone the spiking <laughs> like of drinks. drinks with probiotics <laughs> with anything. <laughs> I think they might notice a probiotic drink. Okay, what's next? So next is Vaccine Awareness Week. So basically this came about because I think it started in Australia. Some of the anti-vax campaigners in Australia um, wanted to run a vaccination awareness a week by which 
we think they mean an anti-vaccination awareness week and this was kind of jumped on by loads of bloggers to turn it into a real vaccination awareness week and so there's been fantastic posts um, all over the place uh, on on the importance of vaccination um, and all this kind of stuff uh, so this so cyborgs in particular has had loads of fantastic um, blogs there's various people have been doing stuff um, and this sort of this kind of got me sort of looking at some other things. So in New Zealand, we have the Immunisation Awareness Society, um, who Are have they a, a pro or an well. This is interesting. So they um, they have a disclaimer on their website, which basically says that they do not advise people not to vaccinate, but they facilitate an informed decision making process. Um, to be fully informed, you have to have access to all the information. So they're so they anti have, then? Well, they have all the information. So it's kind of interesting because they have a list of loads of websites which starts with all the um, pro-vaccination websites actually and then moves on to anti-vaccination. They do have two um, books for sale, both of which appear to be anti-vaccination and they've had the immunization advisory group body um, has, has issued a very... Um, stringent response to that book showing that actually they are misleading and they do seem to err on the side of anti-vax. So on their website, when I looked at it a few weeks ago, they were asking for volunteers to, to um, help man a stall at the parent and child show. So this is something that happens all over the place, I see. It's basically uh, labels itself somewhere to um, get expert information and quality products dedicated to pregnancy babies in early childhood. So there was one in Auckland just a few, possibly two weeks ago or something. There's one in Wellington uh, in June next year and then a Christchurch one to be confirmed. And I thought this was quite interesting. So they're basically an anti-vax, because I think we can call them anti-vax, um, having a stall at a baby show. Um, and it just made me think, right, okay, well, maybe we need to be handing out some leaflets or having our own. Well, they're not the only inappropriate people that had a stall at that show. They had, um, there was a company there that was selling adult toys. Was it? Really? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I guess it might help. You mean, like, you mean like Rubik's Cubes and, and stuff? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> toys, toys for adults. No? Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, there you go. Anyway, so that so um, so I'm thinking we might have to do something about the Immunisation Awareness Society. Yeah. So watch the space. Uh, which leads us on to okay. So a few more things about um, uh, pseudo stuff. So the first is to welcome uh, Michael Edmonds to Cyblogs, who has a. Um, He's just appeared in the last few days. He's been doing a few guest ones, but he's put up the most fantastic post titled Is Homeopathy an Environmental and Health Hazard? It's absolutely fabulous. Um, suggest everybody goes and reads his blog, Molecular Matters. So what's the URL, Susie? Cyblogs.co.nz There's lots of nice blogs on that, but... Um, Molecular Matters is, I think, going to be a great one. And uh, so basically what he's talking about, so obviously everyone on this forum knows what homeopathy is, um, and it's it's all about when you take your, uh, when you do your dilutions, he's saying, what happens to the stuff you throw away? Because obviously you take a, you know, you take one mil and you put it in, in 100 mils, that makes you one in dilution. 99 mils. Sorry, 99 
course. Um, what happens to the other? What happens? To you the you succuss that, and then you take one drop out to do your next level. But that rest of those ninety nine drops gets thrown down the down the sink. Presumably. And each time you do that, that that get that yeah that vial gets more and more potent. Because we, when, when you get right to the end, you've got uh, a 200C caffeine sleeping pill. You take one drop of that and put it onto your pill, and you throw the rest away. Anyway, so what Michael Michael posts is... Um, anyway, so if homeopathic therapies were true, basically all our waterways are contaminated with homeopathic preparations. Um, so incredibly, incredibly dope. Well, exactly. Technically speaking... Just throwing it away isn't going to turn all that water into the homeopathic medicine because it does need to be succussed. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, but those have been succussed. Yeah, yeah. The, the, that, the ones that have gone. But then that is then just added to the water supply. That doesn't turn the water supply right. into the right. thing, yeah. Because that's a mistake a lot of but people maybe make. the act of the, the earth rotating is enough to succuss. He says... So the New Zealand Council of Homeopaths represents over 150 homeopaths in New Zealand. If one were to assume each member produced an average of five new solutions a week, that would amount to over 110 tonnes of contaminated water entering New Zealand waterways every year. That should be shut Yikes! Um, anyway, it's hilarious. Everybody go and read that. It's really funny. Yep. Moving on to acupuncture. Uh, there's been a paper out recently by um, Edzard Ernst, who is basically only really serious uh, serious person who's doing research on um, alternative medicine so he is a professor of complementary medicine um, and he's done a review so the paper is in the oh, hang on a second the paper is in the International Journal of Risk and Safety in Medicine and um, its title is Deaths After Acupuncture A Systematic Review so he has reviewed patients who died after acupuncture and found a history of punctured hearts and lungs, damaged arteries and livers, nerve problems, shock, infection and hemorrhage. And so he's calling for acupuncturists to be adequately trained to make sure that they don't give somebody a pneumothorax, basically. Hmm. Um, this, this, this amazes me, because my understanding of acupuncture is that the needles go relatively shallowly into the skin. Oh. I mean, they don't stick them all the way in, surely. Well... Perhaps if you've not been trained properly. So some people are getting a bit excited. 86 people have died after being treated by acupuncturists. In China or Japan, it says. Anyway, a common cause of death was pneumothorax, where air finds its way between the membranes that separate the lungs from the chest wall and causes the lungs to collapse. Basically, only happens if you get a puncture, you know, punctured. Although so, you can um, have a spontaneous pneumothorax, because I've had that before. Not. Okay. Anyway, he says these fatalities are avoidable and a reminder of the need to insist on adequate training for all acupuncturists. Or everybody that does anything that purports to be vaguely medical. Colin, still with us? Yes. You've been reading up about this chatbot? This uh, is actually quite neat. Uh, for those that are out in the, the, the Twitterverse, the uh, software developer Nigel Leck had doing with anti-science crackpots. So uh, he decided to put his career to good use and has written a uh, program that will do it for him. So the, the skinny of it is, uh, scroll through uh, Twitter looking for a, a bunch of set phrases and uh, when it finds them it basically spits out uh, spits back to the tweeter uh, links uh, to scientific resources and uh, yeah he's uh, slowly improving the database of, of replies and phrases that it has 
uh, to basically try and, and, and anti-science uh, arguments that are out there. Hmm. Now, primarily at the moment, he's focusing on uh, global warming denialists. Is that on right? Global warming, yeah. But just what struck me the first time I read this was just imagine the, the applications for this in any area of pseudoscience, creationism... Well, well indeed, but essentially it's, it could become an arms race. And so the, the anti-global warming people could um, invent their own bot and eventually we'll just have bots talking to each other and <laughs> <laughs> no actual human input at all. That's, that's, that's <laughs> heavy, man. And then the and then mind. the computers will become self-aware and take over the world. <laughs> we'll all be their slaves. And it won't fix anything. One of the things about the robot uprising is you kind of expect the robots to be rational and <laughs> relatively... Um, but now what you've got is you've got exactly the same situation where some of the robots are anti-science and some of them are pro-science. But that's awesome. I, um, I love the idea. Yeah, I think, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And, and as I said earlier, I, I'm throwing a couple of rubbish little comments towards it so that it can flick me the actual link so I know where to go and find out the answers. <laughs> The other thing that it does, which I thought was quite clever, is if it actually starts an argument with somebody and they keep saying the same thing, it actually pulls different responses out of its database. So it can actually identify if the same person is using the same arguments again and give it different links mm, yes. to and different responses. Yeah. So uh, basically there's a lot of global warming deniers out there that are having a silly argument with a uh, robot. Anyway, moving on, KiwiGate. Yeah. Oh yes, KiwiGate. Okay. So, so essentially, there's um, there's the um, an organisation in New Zealand called the Climate Science Coalition, something like that. Anyway, who have brought this legal case against Niwa, um, and they claim that Niwa have um, been uh, essentially falsifying the temperature New Zealand temperature record. Um, and doing adjustments, making adjustments on it to make it look like that global warming has has happened, and and so they've they've taken they're taking Niwa to court uh, to to essentially prove that this is the case and that that global warming is all a hoax and that um, Niwa is uh, is part of this hoax and and so on. It, it I mean the the reaction is interesting. Um, these the people who are doing this seem to be driven by the ideology, um, extreme right-wing ideology, and, and um, not wanting to admit to anthropomorphic global warming. Um, uh, the, the, the reactions from the pro-science people are interesting, um, and I think quite, quite correct. Um, just to give you an example, there's um, Professor Keith Hunter, who's the pro-vitesler, pro-vice-chancellor of sciences at the University of Otago, he has said the suggestion that the New Zealand temperature record has been fraudulently manipulated by NIWA scientists to produce a non-existent warming trend is vexatious in the extreme because it implies not only that they have access to an independent and reliable temperature record which demonstrates that such a manipulation has occurred, which they do not, but also admissible evidence of the intention to commit fraud, which they do not. Thus, it is nothing more than mudslinging designed to confuse the public and smear the reputations of honest scientists. Honest debate and scepticism about science is one thing, but outright slander is quite different, and this latest effort takes climate change denial to a new low. However, I have faith in the Auckland High Court being able to recognise this action for what it truly is. 
So essentially, yeah, they're, they're mudslinging. Um, from what I what I understand of um, what's what has happened with the um, climate temperature or the, the temperature records are that there were some adjustments that needed to be made because uh, uh, temperature sensors get moved around, and so uh, they were they were saying. Are, that are you sure that they're not not just all at airports? Like some people claim. <laughs> well, well, apparently, from what I understand, it they have moved them around, and so um, on the on the basis of moving um, a temperature sensor, say from an airport to an inland area, um, then then they needed to make some adjustments so that, in fact, the um, there's not to show a, a trend that is actually there or not. Yeah, an actual trend, yes, rather than um, showing some um, error because they'd moved the the place that the temperature was recorded. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the outcome of the, the case is, but um, there seem to be some, some people who are just essentially promoting um, bullshit. The annoying thing is that when they get slapped down, that'll be on like the back page of the rag that no one reads. Hmm. Well, wasn't the point of this article that it was slapped down? No, I think this is the... Isn't this new or in trouble? Well, well this? somebody has written an article on a... On a on a um, anti-global warming re- website um, by the name of John Sullivan, who's claiming that there has been a legal defeat um, in the KiwiGate scandal. Oh, I see what you mean. I read that headline wrong. So he's saying that it's a legal defeat of global warming. He's he's saying that that um, there's been a legal defeat of Niwa. Right. Is, fact, okay. I'm sorry. As I understand, not the case. Um, <laughs> and 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 really, there is a line in here that really gives it all away. The story is also covered on web news aggregate, aggregator site IceCap.com. Now, if you go to IceCap.com, it's an anti-global warming site. <laughs> <laughs> it's hardly a web news aggregator. <laughs> okay. Okay. So. Well, that's all our news stories. That is all our news stories. Let's move on to the main event, the Ponsonby <laughs> News. <laughs> Susie rants about the Ponsonby News. And I'm only going to talk about one story today. Just made, that doesn't mean there are more, but I'm going to talk about one. Um, and it's and I think I'm going to... He's my nemesis. John Appleton on health, my nemesis. And for, for my you nemesis... You think he knows you exist? I don't, actually. Um, yeah. I feel embarrassed that I haven't looked at his website before. Um, so I, I thought I'll have a look at it today and you may be as surprised as I am to hear that he sells lots and lots of products wow. like Coenzyme Q10 that? vitamin C vitamin D was it vitamin D that we covered last month I think it might have D been D something with, well, wasn't B. it about the gut bacteria yeah um, so he he does all these things multivitamins interesting so you have to wonder whether there's a conflict of interest there anyway we'll so, leave that so he's giving advice on health measures uh, where he John promotes Appleton. the taking yeah so he every month he talks about all the fantastic things that he's taking and how good they are for him and he sells them there you go so that's johnappleton.co.nz, but again, if you can, go to our website first and then click on the link so he knows where you're where coming you come from. Where you come from, yeah. Hmm. Um, this, this month he's not selling anything um, other than nonsense, I might add. Um, he is talking about um, a, a scientist, I'm, oh no, I'm not going to call him that, um, a doctor, um, Dr. Stanislaw Berzinski. Uh, MD, PhD. Have I heard that name before? Well, he can cure cancer. Have you not heard about him? Oh, no, I think you were thinking so, of Okay. Anyway, so um, 
John Appleton first came across this, this so this will set the scene, you'll see where I'm coming from in just a minute. Uh, John Appleton came across this name a while ago when he was reading actress Suzanne Summers' new book, Knockout, in which she interviews doctors who are curing cancer. So for anyone who doesn't oh, all, know... All of them, because <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. Anyway, what a remarkable man, uh, John Appleton says, um, because he is uh, pushing... Uh, what are they? How do we pronounce this? Anti-neoplastin, a safe, totally non-toxic uh, cancer treatment, basically. What are an anti-neoplastins, I hear you ask? Well, what are anti-neoplastins? <laughs> so this guy, Dr. Berzinski, discovered a long time ago um, that, uh, apparently discovered, that people with cancer were deficient in certain, uh, certain peptides or little proteins. Um, anyway, okay, so basically if we do a quick search of Berzinski on a variety of places, so... Um, if we look on Medline, which is the place where all the papers are, he has published about 60 scientific publications. Um, the most recent was 2006, I think, um, about these, and most of them are about these anti-cancer things. I guess the, the thing to say is that this article by John Appleton is all about this how Dr. Berzinski has basically been persecuted by the scientific establishment. Um, and As he's been—he's been basically attacked by the FDA, da 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 da, um, because what they say is uh, he will hold an exclusive patent on a paradigm-shifting medical breakthrough. Um, if you go to Wikipedia, so they talk a little bit about. Um, born in Poland, um, he started treating, uh, started working with these treatments in 1976. So you'd think by now they would be mainstream treatments if they were really effective. What's really important to know as well is that he he has his own institute, uh, the Bezinski Clinic, where he basically does all his trials and everything. Primero no hacer... Do no harm. Ah. First do no harm. And you can <laughs> saw it in English first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't speak Polish or whatever it was. Um, that was Spanish, sweetie. Uh, yeah, well, then it flashed up in Polish too. Yeah, anyway, um, he has these things. If you go to Quackwatch, he's listed there too. And a fantastic little thing. So firstly, he is claimed to have a PhD, which he doesn't. Um, and then there's a fabulous um, explanation of what these peptides are. So basically, they come from human pee. Um, and it really doesn't look like they actually are very much at all. Um, we know what they are, but they don't. There seems to be no credible reason why they would be effective against cancer. John Appleton's stance is it's fantastic. He's been um, he's moving into phase three trials of these things for really quite nasty cancers. Is he? Um, he is. Oh, he is. Okay. Uh, he is moving. What's really important to know about that that John seems to have failed to mention is that. Um, that they have reached an agreement with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to move forward to clinical trials, um, and it's not—it's a combination therapy. So people will be getting this anti-neoplastins in combination with radiation therapy. Interesting. Right. So are some people going to get both, and some people going to get just radiation? Who knows? Doesn't really say anything about it. Oh yes. So the anti-neoplastins with radiation versus radiation therapy alone. That's a press release of some sort. Yeah, from them. 
what's interesting is that the the report of the phase two trials looks pretty I mean I can't get hold of the publication but it, I mean it was basically done on 18 people some of whom already had had radiotherapy or other things chemotherapy 12 patients suffered from recurrence so that suggests to me that they weren't cured out of how many? out of 18 well it's a very small sample yeah, yeah exactly so it's interesting that they've moved on to phase 3 trials from this anyway so John Appleton uh, is basically um, bigging up this man who has this fantastic cancer cure and I think we can safely say that's probably not the cure for cancer no, I, I, I've, I've just had a look at his website and I think if you want to laugh it's, it's definitely a, a mm. good place to go mm. He's go, got to, a, and go um, to Quackwatch because that explains what these um, antineoplastins are but there is a publication this week in Science that may ultimately provide a new therapeutic target against cancer and they've basically um, so there's been this wondering how cancer basically evades the immune system and they've found a mechanism by which it does that. So what are they trying to, to investigate? Yeah, so how, how it hides basically. Yeah, so, oh, so why, why doesn't why the immune system attack cancer cells? And they've basically found that the cells around them basically um, kind of stop the um, immune response from, from getting in there. So um, now that they've found this interesting thing, they can now see if they can find a way to reverse it. Fantastic. So I think you're probably more likely to find that becoming a tuna, tum- uh, cancer treatment than Fan John Appleton's hmm. Stanislaw Brzezinski's Although, pee. if you just wanted to take a shortcut, you could just drink bleach. Oh, yes, you could. The Miracle, miracle MMS. Yeah. MMS. Yeah. Yes. The completely unnecessary skeptical podcast has not endorsed <laughs> the drinking of bleach. Yes. Essentially, it's a 28% sodium chloride solution, which is an, with an acid such as citric acid. This mixture produces chlorine dioxide, a potent bleach used for stripping textiles and industrial water treatment. And they're suggesting people drink it. It's quite astonishing, isn't it? I mean, I love the. If, is this the. Um, well, so basically, they've been told that they're not allowed to um, sell it as a miracle cure. Well, they're not allowed to make claims on yeah. the cure or anything. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, how you could even sell the stuff in the first place? Why? Why? Why would you think, uh, let's try this bleach and see if that cures cancer? But it's not just cancer. Flu, oh. HIV, you name it. You oh, can okay. take it. It'll kill so what you're saying is that it's a more or less a universal panacea. I think yes. so. Because that, that always works. On your kitchen drink it and it'll kill yeah, yeah. in your body as well. Medsafe have said that high doses could cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and symptoms of severe dehydration. But the guy, the guy who's distributing the stuff. So you said, I've not had one email where someone has said, this doesn't do what you claim, or I nearly died from doing this. <laughs> There's no reason to justify it. Oh, well, we'll just leave him to it, then he can sell them, and yeah. and we'll just wait for someone to die before we take it off the shelves. If you go to their website, though, it's um, interesting how they're really just thumbing their noses against MedSafe. Scary stuff. But it's amazing. So it's categorised as a, di- a dietary supplement and does not require Ministry of Health approval to be sold. It's just shocking. Dietary this is all just ridiculous. Okay, here we are again at the New Zealand Annual Skeptics Conference 2010. 
and we are talking to Michael Edmonds. And Michael, tell us about what a bit why you're here. What are you talking about? My talk was based around science communication, really, or developed from science communication. Uh, I titled it "Dealing with Wing Nuts: Which Way to Turn." Uh, the term "wing nuts" is, um, has been used by some to describe those who are a little off kilter with with rational thought. So the anti-vaxxers, the um, creationists, and those sorts of people. In your talk, you outlined your ten basic rules. Do you want to give us a really brief overview of what those ten rules are? Well, I'll, I guess I'll pull out the key ones. Um, when talking to someone with rather uh, what we'd probably term irrational views, there's sometimes a tendency to bombard them with information where I think it's more valuable to ask them questions and listen to the answers. Because sometimes they aren't as irrational as you think and there might be just some key points where you disagree on. If you ask questions and listen you can focus on those and narrow in and, and sort of have a, meaning, a more meaningful conversation. So you had points like... No swearing. Not swearing at people. <laughs> yes, actually, that, see, that's probably a, a, what I would consider a key one. That even when people are rude to you, I think it's it's a good idea to um, respond calmly and rationally because if you maintain sort of a calm and rational demeanour without being smug or, or anything along those lines, eventually they find that. If someone's being read to you and you're being polite back, I think it's very difficult for them to maintain it if you maintain politeness. Sure. Do you think that holds online as well as in face-to-face? -face? The way uh, I think um, when insults start flying, particularly from both directions, you get basically a flame war and a, rash, a ra rational argument goes out the door. So I, I think it works. I, I, from memory, I've used it a couple of times, and it's a little bit difficult for someone to continue continue to send sort of um, more aggressive messages when you're when you're coming back at them calmly and rationally. Yeah, and I, I think guess it does. if you do get someone who does that, that's sort of your cue to know that it's not worth talking to that person anymore as well. Well, the other thing to consider in in these sorts of situations, it's not just you and that person; it's the audience, and often. Um, whether it's on a blog, there are people reading it, often they will sort of, I think it's human instinct to lean towards uh, or defend the um, someone the underdog. The, the underdog. <laughs> and, and when there's someone being overly aggressive, if, uh, I think if you, you're calm, then you sort of fit into that category and, and you can pretty much pull the audience over to your side. But you've raised an interesting point in your talk in that actually you may not convince the uh, the person you're dialoguing with, but it's the actual audience who you might be, those wavering people who you might be influencing. And I thought that was very interesting, that they might be your audience rather than the people, the person attacking you or the person yeah, you're conversing you're with. Yeah, it's unlikely that you're going to change anyone's mind, the person you're arguing with, but it's the fence that is, it's the people reading that you're tra really trying to convince. So who in your mind, who does it well and who does it poorly? Um... Other than yourself, of course. We'll, we'll take you as an example oh, of the no, paragon no. of... No, no, there are far, be far, far better people than me. I think most people would probably agree that Carl Sagan was, was, was exceptionally good at um, delivering it, and he could deliver it assertively, but um, I never really read anything of his that I thought, well, that's a bit rude, or, or you know, that's a bit confrontational. It was all... 
here's here's the logic. Um, yeah, um, it really is hard to get yeah. to imagine anyone getting angry at yeah. Carl Sagan. He's yeah. just got that calm voice, mm. and it's like a little puppy dog. He's <laughs> great. Yes. No, I mean, is that the tactic then? Yeah. Behave like a puppy dog, and people will feel sorry for you. They might come around to your way of thinking. <laughs> I, I think he could assert himself, though, but I d himself though, when, when necessary. But he didn't cross that line into sort oh, of in your face, sort of, which puts people off, in my opinion. And speaking of which. Who does that? Um, who do you think is a bad example? <laughs> who, who should we not emulate? Um, name oh, names. Name names. Oh, that's a tricky one. Penn and Teller. Do you like Penn and Teller's style? Penn and Teller, I find a little bit, um, a little bit over the top, and and maybe that that appeals more to the American market, but. Um, but certainly their persona. That's what they're going for. That's deliberate, on their part. And, and I guess they occupy. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't really say that you know someone's wrong because I think they reach a certain type of person. Richard Dawkins, I know a few people find him quite abrasive, and and um, in some respects, yeah, I guess he seems abrasive to me. But I think he he occupies a position where um, the exalted, <laughs> which is funny for a bunch of yes, atheists. Yes, I kind of hope that atheists don't exalt him, but he's a focus point. And while, while some of the stuff he says could potentially push away someone who's on the other side, that he's, a, he's an extremely good gathering point for those who are atheists and sceptics. Um, and I think there's value in the more outspoken people. I just think, don't think we really need too many of them. Um, <laughs> P.Z. Myers, I think, um, originally I found him extremely abrasive, but um, I think he's he's... An incredible focus for the um, for the uh, Americans and through his blogs around the world, and I think he does some great stuff on on Ferengula. But because it's mainly skeptics that read there, I think he, he can be more abrasive, and sometimes it's quite cathartic to get together with the people of like mind and, and make fun of the believers. And make fun of the believers. I just don't think that that sort of technique would work. Sort of if you're trying to talk rationally with a believer. Right. So there's really is two different types of communication. There's making fun of them when we're all in a, in a skeptics meeting like this, or when you're actually dialoguing with them on a, online or in person. Tell us a little bit about how you got here. How did you get to the skeptics talking about wingnuts? How did I get to the skeptics talking about wingnuts? Oh, do you want the long version? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Go on. The short version. Basically, I started... Um, I've always, I've always loved science, apart from a minor dabbling with, um, with um, the paranormal in my early teens. <gasps> Ooh. That's right. We don't, we don't judge about what we did in our past around here. <laughs> it's an interesting area, and it was a starting point. So the paranormal was quite interesting, but then it was felt, it's actually more. It feels like there's something lacking, and then my interest in, in real science developed. Um, and I thought, always thought I'd do a, a spend, um, have a research career, and then I moved into research and teaching. And um, the <coughs> one of the problems with one of the problems I should say with research is you can be so fo fo focused on producing research, you don't take much notice of the wider scientific community. And um, once I eased back on the research, there was time to look at science, and and I saw skeptics as sort of an important role in, in 
sort of um, champion championing good science, com uh, you know, when against the people such as the creationists and the anti-vaxxers. I think we need people doing it, and sometimes scientists are too busy to to do that. So your bugbears, what are your favourite things to hate? As a chemist, homeopathy really makes no sense to me, but uh, I think the problem there is that homeopaths, a lot of homeopaths um, are actually well-meaning, I just don't think they're very well-versed in science, and um, yes, uh, you're basically paying for, for um, water. $10 a teaspoon? $10 a teaspoon, yes. All right, thank you very much, Michael. It's been great listening to you, and it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Okay, thank and, you. And um, hope to see you around, and oh, enjoy indeed. the rest of the conference. Oh, I'm sure I will. And uh, what are we talking about? September. Further information about September. We are still working on it. We are still working on it. We're working on a website where you're going to be able to go and sign up for, sign up for the website and create events. Um, so that other people know what's going on. Yep. And we'll have blogs and forums so you can talk about what's going on. Yep. We've got a Google Groups um, mailing, site, list. mailing list that we're wanting people to volunteer to. Now, anyone can sign up for that? No, I've made it so they can't. Okay, um, so we'll manage so that through the yeah. website perhaps. If you yep. want to be a part of involved. the organisation mailing list, um, go to the website. Do webs we have to explain what September's going to be? Um, well, we talked about it last week. Everyone listens to all of our podcasts, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> last month. Last month. Um, September is... Craig, tell us about your idea. Well, we're going to be applying to the International Standards Committees to rename <laughs> September to September. Indeed. Not really, but we, we want to organise... Uh, well, essentially rebrand September as September and have it as a month that promotes sceptical thinking and critical thinking and rationalism rationalism and uh, try and get uh, events into the into the media so basically the idea is to jam-pack a lot of events all over the world where people are doing sceptical stuff during the month of September and better still help make them happen yes help yes. make them happen we need organisers for yep. people who want to have ideas and run an event and the website is skeptember.com. Go to skeptember.com and have a look and sign up and then join the mailing list for further information. Skeptember with a K, of course. Yes, Skeptember with a K. I think it should be fairly easy to find. And uh, that just leaves us with the word of, today, word of the day. And today's word of the day is kefalonomancy, which is divination using a baked ass's head. <laughs> How many people have access to that? Well, assuming you've, if you've got access to an ass's head, you can bake it. I mean, that That's doesn't what seem I mean. terribly saying, hard to me. No, but it baked was... or roasted? Baked, specifically baked. The head of an ass that's been baked is kefalonomancy. Okay, who uses this? Kefalonomancers. Yes, precisely. Well done, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Can you name one? <laughs> and Craig has a quote for us. Science is best defined as a careful, disciplined, logical search for knowledge about any and all aspects of the universe, obtained by examination of the best available evidence and always subject to correction and improvement upon discovery of better evidence. What's left is magic, and it doesn't work. Science cannot solve everything, but the alternatives 
really solved nothing. <laughs> nice. Said by none other than James Randi. Oh, yay, James Randi. And you've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to send us a message or feedback, check out the contact page on our website, thecusp.org.nz. And some of the other ones were... <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It was a great oh, I'm talk. I'm trying to remember too. Um, 